Hello and welcome back officially to Tani Talks Radio, brought to you by Sheer Enjoyment Radio, powered by Radio.co. This is the Sheer or the Talk, oftentimes the Talk, where we talk a topic of the week for the audience members to keep talking different things that come up. We talked about coming back to school and homework and extracurriculars and Yonam and different things and hobbies and games and many, many other different things. I wanted to give a little spin on where I work in the system that I work and how it's set up and how it's broken down. But before we begin officially, I want to remind you, you can listen to us on many different forums and many different platforms and many different ways. Of course, the Sheer Enjoyment Radio app that was built thanks to Radio.co, the wonderful developers, including myself, not me, that's wonderful, but the developers were wonderful working hand-in-hand to make that come to life. It was a really interesting experience, very frustrating at times, but very, very, very cool. And that's on the Google Play Store and the Apple App Store, the Sheer Enjoyment Radio app. You could also listen to us at 520-453-8302, 520-453-8302. That's our phone call on the line. You could email us at sheerenjoymentradio at gmail.com with questions, comments, suggestions, or the like. And if you want to be given a shout-out on the air as well, you can let us know. You could also listen to us on JRoot Radio on the app. You could also listen to us on JRoot Radio on the website. You could also listen to us on the Naki Radio channel, JRoot Radio. You could listen to us on the Sheer Enjoyment Radio channel as well, on the channel as well. There are many different ways to listen, many different ways to participate. This is Tani Talks Radio, brought to you by Sheer Enjoyment Radio, powered by Radio.co. It's actually really, really simple in order to be brought onto the radio in order to be brought onto radio.co you go to radio.co literally r-a-d-i-o.co and it's amazing to set up it's amazing to be a participant and it's really easy actually to get involved it only takes a couple of minutes to get used to it's such a cool thing to be on the radio really a dream come true to be able to do this weekly at 8 30 mirzashambli nender we had heard such a wonderful thing and of course, you can listen to our different show throughout the week or different talks throughout the week. Of course, Tani Talks Radio is Mondays at 8.30 Eastern Standard Time. And then there's Tani Talks Parsha, which we do a lesson of the Parsha of the week with some practical lessons to keep about five to ten minutes on this season, season three. And the OT show, Tani Talks Occupational Therapy, that's five to ten minutes on weekdays, Monday through Thursday, Blinader. And then we have the Pirke Elvis show, Tani Talks Pirke Elvis, Monday through Thursday, also five to ten minutes. The DAF show is usually Monday through Thursday that we record, and that's about one to three, four minutes a day on the DAF Yomi of the day. And those are our shows. That's the Tani Talks podcast. You can hear it on the Tani Talks podcast channel on Naki Radio, which is an amazing internet Jewish kosher radio player. You could join us at the WhatsApp group where to get the direct, the recordings directly to your phone. You can message me at maximum tee at yahoo to be added to that group. And you could also hear us on many different podcast forums, including Yidpod, which is brought to you by jewishpodcast.fm where I am hosted thanks to them. You could also see me on Google, on Spotify, on iTunes and the like. All those podcasts are all there, all over the place. And of course, this radio episode, after the fact, is uploaded as a podcast as well to be listened to on those different forums and formats. So thank you for joining us here on Tani Talks Radio, brought to you by Sheer Enjoyment Radio, powered by Radio.co. If you want to join in and you want to be read 
allowed dinner with different comments or suggestions or questions, you can email us at sheerenjoymentradio at gmail.com. You could call us at 520-453-8302, 520-453-8302 if you want to listen in via phone. So I, of course, am an occupational therapist by trade, pediatric occupational therapist by trade. I do what I love and I love what I do as a profession, and that was a big key thing owning up to many years ago where it came I've talked about this before, but the major, major player to get me to think about this profession was way back in the day when I worked in Camp Hask from 07 to 09 in the summers. And I had different students, different members, different campers who had services, who needed services, especially OTPT speech. There was a big therapy building all the way down on uh, Main Street Lane over there in Camp Hask in uh, Liberty, New York. Upstate, and I used to bring the the student, the campers, to get their services, and all three services were given in this massive behemoth of a building. I don't know how many square feet it was, but it was a really nice building, really big building, and all the different services services were going on concurrently. And when I brought my my camper there, my camper was confined to a wheelchair, but for his session, the OT, the occupational therapist, took him out, put him on the on the on the platform on the on the mat which was on stilts really, so it wasn't really the floor, it wasn't really a mat. And, the, and she had him lying in prone, which means on his stomach and being involved in activities, trying to throw bean bags and, and toys and rings onto the box, into the box, onto the ring. And I thought this was fantastic. And if this is what you could do, you could literally work on skills with a kid to be paid for it, to play with kids in games, to be paid for what better job is there out there? So in college, I really had in mind what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a person that could work on the skills with kids to get them to be more independent and functional in life, which is one of the main goals of OT in general, especially fine motor-wise and sensory-wise and organizational-wise. So my, my whole college education was geared towards that, taking the prereqs in the most functional way possible, not the intense, crazy courses, but the courses that work towards the degree, making sure that we knew that bio would be okay, regular bio, not crazy, intense pre-med bio, making sure to find anatomy and physiology. I took it in LIU in the summer and actually went to LIU Brooklyn for my degree in a bachelor's and a master's in OT. And then, of course, grad school itself was for OT. Fascinating experience. Very, very difficult experience. Three years halfway in, I met my wife and got married, so I was still in school and uh, had to be supported by the wife to finish school. And then once we finished school, took the boards and Baruch Hashem were placed and started working for the DOE. When I came to the DOE, the way that the education is set up, the way that it was involved is a different kind of a setup than we see in regular day school, that we see in regular... Jewish day school and the setup. Oftentimes we come into a classroom, and I'm going to give an, an overall picture in general. When we come to it, it's a little bit of a different feel, a little bit of a different setup. Obviously, there's no Judaics. Obviously, there's no religiosity allowed to be taught, although they do allow secular holidays and whatnot to be brought up in the school system. But we come to the classroom, it looks a little different. So, for example, private versus public. When it comes to a private class, you don't have the mandates of how many kids in the class. Obviously, the school tries to keep it low to itself, but you're not going to see 33 kids usually in a in a classroom, especially K-1-2. My son's class, he's in second grade, and I believe they have 20 or 22 kids, and I believe they have a teacher and a co-teacher and in the morning and the afternoon. And the, I like that a lot. So you have the two teachers for the 22 kids, whereas in public school, we'll go to it s- soon, 
It's not like that. And when he was in preschool versus when in kindergarten, when they were maybe 16 or 20 kids with the two teachers, very different setup. And of course, they have morning of Judaics and afternoon of general studies or vice versa, morning general studies and afternoon of Judaics. Whether you're in a co-ed school or not co-ed school, it's a different setup in general. But when we come to the DOE, when we come to the Department of Education, and this might be in the nation in general, but at least in New York, there's regular and then there's 75. 75 is the district. It's called District 75, but District 75 is in all five boroughs. It's just the name of the overall placement of students that have special needs that cannot be met in the regular general education environment. But let's go backwards for a second, starting with the gen eds. You come to a gen ed school, and I've been, thank God, in over 12 schools at this point in seven plus years of, uh, of working in the school system started when my son was born right after paternity leave, self-assigned paternity leave way back in uh, 2015. I started. So we've been in now over seven years. And when it comes to coming to Gen Ed, there are three different setups that you'll see. Of course, there's K and this one, two, three, four, five is my favorite to work in K to five is my favorite ages. Really, K to two is the best ages for me. But K to five, once they get to sixth, seventh, eighth grade, I like to ship them off to my wife. Let my wife, who's a the middle school's teacher um, ad perfection, let her deal with them. But for me, I need K to five, the kindergartners to fifth graders. And when we come to this to this school, oftentimes we'll see three different types of setups. There's the gen ed classroom where it's one teacher for all the students, and you can have up to 30, 31, 32, 33 students. Actually, recently... Acting Governor Hockle actually signed into legislation. I believe that the class sizes starting now until the next five, six years, they have to be cut down by a third. I think that the most you can now have in a classroom is 20 or 22 for gen ed um, for little kids. And then middle school, I think it's allowed more, maybe 22, 23. And then high school, I think it's allowed up to 25 kids, but that's still great compared to what we had before, 30, 33, 35. It's a little more manageable, you know, when it's one on 20 versus one on 33. I still believe, actually, I have a theory that I still believe it would be more beneficial and more worthwhile for every classroom to actually have a teacher and an assistant teacher. Some teachers will say, my wife has said, and other people have said that sometimes an assistant is not as helpful, especially if they're not in tandem with you, in coordination with you. And and um, oftentimes you could see these different clips and memes, how it's like you're teaching another student and they're going against what you're trying to do. But if it's in tandem, if it's helpful, if it's someone that could work seamlessly with you, that could actually help you, I believe an assistant, especially in the DOE, is really necessary. Why is it that assistants are only given in other factors and other situations? So you have Jenna, you walk in, you have 20, 30 kids. You're supposed to be responsible for all of those kids and their development. Even in private, my wife has had a lot of kids in one class, 20, 25, 30 at times. And then you, you have all the all the classes in the grade and you have to keep track of everybody. For me, I can't have that. As an OT, I got to have max 20, 24 kids. I can't have any more of that. It's too difficult to keep track of. It's too difficult to keep account of. And how are you going to remember everybody's needs and everybody's different ways of learning? We want to be Hanukkah and RP Darko, right? We want to be that we teach and, and we train each kid according to their way, which is the motto of our kids' school. But it's hard to keep track when there's so many kids. So you walk into Gen Ed and you have so many kids. Only very infrequently will there be allowed to be another adult in the room only in select certain circumstances, like if there's a paraprofessional written in legally on the kid's IEP. Let's say for some reason the kid has an IEP, whether he has 
medical issues or he has behavioral issues, but he's still cognizant enough, he's capable enough cognitively to be in a gen ed class, a regular class, regular kids, but he has different needs, different difficulties. Maybe he has a health issue and a parent's there for health reasons or crisis reasons and he's transitioning to gen ed. Maybe you'll have another person in the room, but there's no such thing as a classroom para for a gen ed teacher. It doesn't work. It's not heard of. It's not in existence. I would love one day if they change it that every teacher by definition is given an assistant. I think that would be much better, but that's not how it usually goes. And that's what you see in gen ed. I walk into a room and I see a teacher with 20, 25, 30 kids. That's the norm. Very infrequently will I, as the OT, have a kid in gen ed. It's not usual. Usually they're regular kids without IEPs and without behavioral programs or without special support services or related services that OT is. More often than not, I'll have more of the kids in one of the other two directions, one of the other two capabilities, one of the other two types of classes or types of roads, if you will, in the school system. Then we have something called ICT, Integrated Co-Teaching Model. I think this is a very fascinating model. You have one special ed teacher that's technically responsible for half the kids that have IEPs in the classroom, and then one gen ed teacher that's technically responsible for the non IEP kids, the kids that do not have IEPs in the classroom. So if you have 30 kids in a class, which is still a lot, 15 are supposed to be those with IEPs and 15 are supposed to be gen ed. Kids are supposed to be, you know, mixed for different lessons. And when there's um, focused teaching and integrated teaching and then specific teaching, they're supposed to have one group of the kids with IEPs for their specialized instruction and the other kids of the gen ed kids in the same classroom. Then there are two teachers, one special ed teacher and one gen ed teacher. And I think that's very interesting. But hopefully, again, it's a connection where the two teachers work together. If you have two very strong personalities, opposite personalities, I can't imagine what the classroom culture will be like and what the the atmosphere in the room will be like. It might not be so simple. It might not be so easy. It might not be so functional for the learning experience for the teachers in the room, for the classes in the room, for the kids in the room. So if I have 22 kids on average, 24 kids for OT mandates, and I'm supposed to see 40 sessions a week, which is usually if every kid has twice a week, it would be 20 kids with 40 sessions, eight sessions a day, five days a week, Monday to Friday. But oftentimes it's not. I'll have a kid that is once a week and then another kid that is three times a week, very infrequent. And usually it's the twice a week, 30 minutes, individual, sometimes group session. We'll talk about that, God willing, later. But sometimes on my roster, I'll have a kid in an ICT classroom. So he'll be one of the kids that are in the specialized part of the class, one of those 15 or so kids with the IEP, oftentimes being directed, being taught by the special ed teacher. Well, that's not even where the crux of the kids come. Oftentimes, the kids come from the other direction, the other road that you see in gen ed, and that's called the self-contained class, where it's the 12 to 1 to 1 class. So it's 12 students with one teacher and one paraprofessional. Now that is an interesting setup because there you have the support and you have built into the classroom the paraprofessional, which I like to call assistant teacher better or teacher's helper because the, the name para doesn't get the, the respect I believe it deserves and the connotation that it really does deserve. So let's call them teacher's assistants, teacher's helpers, or or second teacher, whatever. But in the 12 to 1 to 1 classroom, so you have a lot of these all these students and these students each have an IEP 
at most you can have, and legally you're supposed to have the 12 students in the room with the one teacher who's a, um, a special ed teacher by trade, by profession, and by degree. Then you have the paraprofessional. But sometimes you will have more than one paraprofessional in the room, especially if the kid on his IEP is legally mandated to have that one-to-one, that paraprofessional, either for crisis or health. Crisis means he's a danger to himself or others, or he can go into a crisis situation that could either harm himself or others, or it's for a health reason, like he has allergies or he has uh, special health needs or special health, whatever. But if you have four kids with paraprofessionals, then you're going to have a lot of adults in the room, and then it becomes more adults than the kids almost, and then that becomes difficult. Then you could have a lot of adults in the room, but by and large, usually it's the one teacher and the one para, maybe one extra para. Sometimes I was in a uh, a classroom and also special ed, by the way, s- side note, these self-contained classrooms are really bridge classes. So it's not like you have first grade, you know, 12 to 1 to 1. You have like first grade ICT, but sometimes it's first, second grade ICT, I believe. But really when it comes to the, the 12 to 1 to 1, it's really bridging. So it's really first, second grade has a special ed class, 12 to 1, third, fourth has one, and, fi- and, and third, fourth, fifth can have one. So it's a little less that you see them around the school, but they are there. And the kids have different levels of what, of what, of what grade level they're technically on. So you, you look to the IP to see where they're technically at, but you could have, different grades in one classroom. I actually had a teacher who had K1 and 2, some students in the same class, and she had like two paraprofessionals plus the classroom professionals. So you had four adults in the room with 12 kids. And then when we came in, you know, either push in or pull out, you have even more adults in the room. But that's the gen ed. That's the, the setup of the different kinds of kids you'll see in the session, in the in the layout of the gen ed. And then you come to District 75, which is what I do, Blaine I try to do in the summers for some extra cash and some extra work. And it's usually a six-week program. Like last year was July 1st till August 12th, 13th. It's a really nice thing. I find it very, uh, very nice to be in a little bit of a different pace in the summer. It's, it's a little more campy feeling. It's a little more relaxed feeling, a little less focus on academia, more focus on letting the kids learn and have fun and learn skills, have trips. We went a couple times to Trader Joe's last summer and got some stuff to bring home. We went one time to the zoo and one time we went to a walking trip and then we went another time to, I forget, I went one more place, but it was really cool trips and one time we, we cook with the kids. When we can have an OT perspective on it, it's really nice. So when it comes to District 75, there's a little bit of a different setup. They have three roads also, three three divergences of what you could see also, but very different of those three. When it comes to 75, these are the kids that have major special needs, major difficulties that need to be addressed and helped. You'll have kids that have wheelchairs if the school is is able to be wheelchair accessible, the children that have autism and Down syndrome and cerebral palsy, a lot of difficulties that they might have health-wise, physically-wise, or cognitively-wise, you'll see it in District 75. And then there's the three types of setups. Usually it's 611, 811, and 1211. And when I say 11, it usually means teacher versus paraprofessional. And of course, they have the IEP, which is this individualized education program, which tells them what supports they need, what services they need, how they learn, how they score on their tests, what uh, what they do reading-wise, writing-wise, math-wise, spelling-wise, learning-wise. It's everything about the student is supposed to be in the document, in that file. It's usually about 12 pages or so. You have the header page. You have the related service page. You have the mandates page. You have a special accommodations page, the goals pages, and the information pages of all the plops, the present level of performance, how they're doing now. Very interesting document, very 
exhaustive document. So whatever person is coming to it, whatever spin you're coming into it, you should find your section. OT, obviously, we find the OT section and the goals, and we look at the mandates. And when it comes to things like that, we look at it and we see how we are involved. So these kids that come to, to District 75, they all have these IEPs that are that are relevant and pertinent to them and follow them wherever they go. If they switch schools or they switch you know, communities, they switch boroughs, the IEP should follow them. And it's online nowadays. It used to be paper-based and you'd have to send the papers all over the place or fax them, file them. But now it's online on CSIS. I'm actually a fan of CSIS, Special Education Student Information System or Special Education Student uh, Information, something like that. That's what CSIS stands for. But it's, uh, it's a place where you could find all the information about the student, the Special Education Student Information System. I am corrected by myself. CSIS stands for Special Education Student Information System. You have your user ID and your password, and you go, and then you could log different things. My session notes I log there. My goals I log there. My mandates I log there for IEPs and progress notes we log there. And our clinical guides, when we're updating the 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 IP every year, we're supposed to submit the clinical guide as well. Very interesting portal. Supposedly, we're switching over to a different platform. I'm not sure it's going to be any better or any worse, but I'm actually very used to CSIS, so I don't have a problem with it. A lot of people are very against it, but neither here nor there. But when these kids come to these settings and their surroundings, they come with their IEP. When you have 6, 8, and 12, it's fundamentally a different type of class structure. There's also 12-1-4. So 6-1-1 is the very intense, very involved students. This is someone that has severe autism, for example, or severe Down syndrome, or some sort of difficulty that's very intense and they need the extra support, the extra individualization. So in that classroom, you have six students. Oftentimes, there's children that have the autism, children that have the Down syndrome, different conditions, different disabilities, different difficulties. Then you have the classroom paraprofessional and you have the teacher, the special ed teacher, obviously, working in District 75, but oftentimes it's not only the two adults in the room. Oftentimes there are more adults because 90% of the time there's at least one other child that has a one-to-one, personal one-to-one, personal paraprofessional, personal student assist, uh, teacher assistant that is in the room with that child, follows the child, is with the child the whole day except for their breaks and their lunch. That person is is basically tied in their day to that student, supposed to go with him to his services, supposed to go with him around the building and around the places. So if you have six kids and each one has a para, technically you can have eight adults in the room, technically, because you have the teacher, the class para, and then the para for each child, six children. But usually it's not like that. Usually you'll have two or three extra paras in the room. Then you have eight to one to one, where there's eight students, one teacher, one paraprofessional, and this kind of a classroom, oftentimes it's the students that have ED, emotional difficulties. So they're not as severe in terms of their physical needs or physical difficulties or in ter- or as, as in hands-on in terms of their cognitive needs. They're a little higher cognitively, a little higher functionality, but there are other dis- difficulties and other differences that have to be worked on. Again, oftentimes they'll have one-to-ones each kid, depending on their IEP, what's mandated for them. And then you have the 12 to 1 to 1, which is different than the 12 to 1 to 1 of Gen Ed. 12 to 1 to 1 Gen Ed is still higher, you know, cognitively and functional wise than the 12 1 to 1 of District 75 because they're not in the Gen Ed setting. They're still in the special ed setting, the District 75 setting. And there's a District 75 in all the boroughs and all the community, not all the communities, but many, many communities around the boroughs and they have to be spread out in order to be so. This kind of a 12 to 1 might be someone who has high functioning autism, 
used to be known as Asperger's, someone who might be very cognitively with it, but might have some C CP or, or some slight version of some condition or difficulty or difference, but they're not at the level of the 12 to 1 of the, of the gen ed, and they're not going to be as focused on academia. There's a little bit of, a, of, of less demands of what they're supposed to learn, and there's sometimes alternate assessment where they're not being assessed exactly on the same scores and testing that is in gen ed. But these are the types of settings we'll see with these students. And I've worked in both, in Gen Ed and in District 75. Currently, my leaning is to stay in Gen Ed because it's a different type of a influence, a different kind of an interaction, a different type of a setting to work in. 75 is oftentimes very intense cases. I've worked with students that had... Everything from autism to Down syndrome and, and by and large in between. And I've had kids that were, you know, scratching me and, and trying to, to bite and trying to punch and trying to, to whatever, to different things. So if you're working with these kids and I give major credit, major, um, hero plug to people who work in the 75, I believe that's, there's a lot of heroes. There are heroes all over the education system, but there's an extra, extra strength needed to work all year, especially in the summer for children that are in the 75 setting because it's very intense cases, very involved cases, physically demanding, physically exhaustive cases there. So even though there were years where I was hybrid half gen ed, half 75, or full 75, full gen ed, now I like to, to be with gen ed during the year and 75 in the summer. I feel like that's a very good mix and mission mosh because in the summer we, we switch it up a little bit for those weeks to still have that dipping our toes into the 75. But then during the year, we're back in gen ed. And children that we can have, you know, conversations with, children that we can work on different things with. But I will say, in 75, the goals are very different than in Gen Ed. So with each IEP, with each, each child, we have to write goals depending on the support that they need, depending on the service that they need. So PT, physical therapy is going to be a gross motor goal. You know, Sam will be able to jump X number of feet with both feet on the floor. Sam will be able to throw a ball X number of feet or kick a ball or go up the stairs, ambulate safely, etc. Speech, they're going to articulate WH words or AR words, whatever their, their thing is, will be able to conversation, use words. And of course, counseling, they'll be able to moderate themselves and be able to socially interact and calm themselves down and attend and focus to the lesson. Each, each discipline has to have their own goal. Of course, for OT, we find the goals that will work fine motor-wise and education-wise to help the student progress as independently and as functionally as possible. But 75 versus Gen N, the goals will look different. In 75, we're working more on life skills oftentimes. These are the students that we need them to learn how to be independent in self-care oftentimes. So if we're seeing kids that have difficulties with dressing, we're seeing kids that have difficulty with toothbrushing, we're seeing kids that have difficulty with even holding the pencil, then my goal for them is not going to be writing sentences, writing paragraphs, or cutting the paper exactly perfect. I'm going to try to get them to work unzippering, try to get them to work on donning and doffing clothing. You know, if they if they can't even dress themselves, they can't even put on a sweatshirt or put on a coat, let's work on that. That's called donning, putting something on. They can't take off the coat without the help of the teacher. Let's work on doffing the coat, taking off the coat. They can't zipper, they can't button, they can't snap, they can't, you know, connect buckles. These are things that we want to work on and help them with. And I think it's really nice that in 75 we have the ability to work on this. So these are oftentimes goals we'll see. You know, Sam, using a made-up name, will be able to independently zipper his coat, 
by himself by the end of the year, for example, or he'll be able to button his his or be able to tie his shoes. These are different types of goals that we see in seventy five. They'll be able to feed themselves, hold a fork, hold a hold a spoon. If they can't even feed themselves, but by the end of the year they can, that's a major win for a child in District seventy five. If they can't hold a pencil, and I want them to hold a pencil just to write a word, Sam will be able to utilize an independent functional grasp to be able to hold the pencil with a tripod grasp, which is the thumb, the pointer, and the middle finger, to hold that tripod grasp on a on a marker, on a pencil, to be able to write his name, that's a win if we get that done by the end of the year. Goals are annual. By the next time next year, if the IEP meeting comes November 14th, then by next November 14th, we already have had to have the IEP meeting before so that we could start new goals to see what he progressed in. And when we're looking at Gen Ed, the goals are a little different. Obviously, there are going to be kids in Gen Ed who are with it, who are holding, and and they could be in Gen Ed, but they might still have self-care goals and self-care needs. So maybe Jimmy is able to be in Gen Ed, but it's not physically possible for him to do the code by himself yet. He still needs some help with the code, so I could still do a code goal or a buttoning goal or a zippering goal or a tying the shoes goal, but by and large, my goals are not usually like that. Usually, they're related to writing or cutting, so Jimmy will be able to write two to three sentences, and it depends if he's K or first or second. Once we get to third, fourth, I want them to write a paragraph or two with like four lines in each paragraph with the proper form of the letters, the size of the letters, the space of the letters and words, and the line regard, where they're writing on the line. They're not writing above the line. They're not writing below the line. They're not writing all over the paper. I want them to have the form, size, space, and line regard when they're writing for their assignments. And of course, K, we want them to do like one to two lines. And then first, you know, one to two to three lines, maybe three, four, five words in each sentence in each line. And then once we get to third and fourth, I really want the two to three, three to four sentences, and then already the paragraphs to two paragraphs with that proper form, size, line, regard, and space in their writing. Oftentimes, also, we have to work on cutting and pasting. They're not always so good at that. Holding the scissors, I want them to hold it in a proper functional grasp where the thumb is in the small hole at top and the pointer and the middle finger are in the oval hole at the bottom of the scissors. you got to hold it in the right way with the hole on top and the oval on bottom. I like the Stanley Guppy scissors. By the way, those are my favorite scissors. You can get them on Amazon for five bucks or so. It's very smooth and it's a nice way. They have blunt tip and it's not too big a scissors and it's comfortable for the kids and it's easy for them to hold it in the right way. But I want them to be able to hold the pencil in the right way also with a tripod grasp. So if I give them a pencil, that's the usual pencil, that's the regular pencil, Oftentimes for kids that have little, little hands, it's way too big for those kids. It's way too big for those children. I see my own child in second grade and and my other child in kindergarten, God willing, the girls when they get bigger. They're given these pencils that are almost twice the size of their hands. Why are you giving them a six-inch pencil or a seven-inch pencil? Their hands are so tiny or so small. It's just too hard. There's too much surface area. How do you expect them to hold the pencil when the pencil is so massive, when it's so big? So my solution is to 
cut the pencil in half. Not literally, but I have found pencils that are actually half the size. And the solution, I believe, is the golf pencil. A golf pencil, they sell them with erasers, especially on Amazon. I found a box of 96 for 10 bucks. Those pencils are much more conducive, much more functional, much more apropos and realistic for kids with tiny hands. And K, one, two, three. And those grades, we want them to hold the pencil in the right way, but why does it have to be these massive pencils, these number two pencils that are twice the size of their hands? Go get those golf pencils with erasers and their number two pencils. They're still good for Scantron. They're fantastic and awesome, much more conducive. If they still can't hold the pencil in the right way, I'll get them playing under a crossover ergonomic writing grip from the Pencil Grip Company. It's really, really soft, really mushy, nice. They have vibrant colors and metallic also, where you put the thumb on one side and the pointer and the middle finger on the other side. They squeeze the pencil while holding the grip, and voila, they're holding it in the right way. In order to account for markers and crayons when I want them to hold in the right way, talking some education, we wanted to hold, we want to hold the right size. So I found markers that also cut down by like a third. A marker, a general marker is pretty big for a kid's hand as well. You think about the Crayola markers, they're pretty big. So a solution is called the pipsqueak marker, which is basically half the size also of a marker. Then they can hold it with the thumb, the pointer, and the middle finger, and voila, we've solved that problem as well. So they're able to hold the pencil and the marker in the right way. What do we do for crayons? The solution I found is actually to break the crayon in half or by a third. The crayon is not huge to begin with, but we could still cut down the amount of surface area that is on the crayon, on the coloring utensil, on the writing instrument to make it fit into the hands much nicer. So we cut it in half, we break it in half, or we break it in third, and then they're forced to literally have only the surface area only on the crayon, and it only could fit a few fingers, so they could only fit those three fingers, and then we force them by nature of how small the writing instrument is to use it in the right way. When it comes to the scissors, again, we use the Stanley Guppy scissors. If I have to, I'll use adapted scissors. You could look them up on Amazon. Basically, you, you open and close them with the thumb versus the other fingers, like squeezing the scissors, and the scissors works that way. But that's really a compensatory technique. It's not the best overall final solution, but at least it's a good beginning solution for the kids. I also want them to space their words and space their their letters, not too much, but space them in a way. So my solution for that, a very cheap solution, is using a paper clip in between each word as they're writing. If they're a lefty, they write with their left hand and their right hand has the paper clip. And then they do the word after that. They put their hand over the paper clip for the next word. You move the paper clip to the next word and they go so on and so forth. I actually like a popsicle stick even better. And what I found are rubber ice cream sticks to make ice cream popsicles. Those are actually really nice. And then I give it to the kid. He gets excited. He can use it in class. He can use it at home. And that's a good word spacer solution, a good word spacer technique. And another solution that we try to do is that of the double lined paper. I like the handwriting without tears has a wonderful program. One of the things they have is the double lined paper and the kids are supposed to write in those two lines because when they start in kindergarten, they start in first grade, even second grade, their words and their letters are humongous, humongous all over the paper, way too big for the lines, way too big for the paper itself. On the line, they write my name and it's already taken up the whole line and they're gonna have to go to the next line that's all over the paper if we give them paper we try to direct them to only write in the two lines that could be a way to go about it that could be a way to think about how to go about it and to be involved so these are 
the ways of going about thinking about how it could help in general from an OT perspective, thinking about the education, looking at D75 versus Gen Ed. Again, in Gen Ed, the goals are going to be much more like writing with the form, size, space, and line and cutting on the shape itself. Usually we'll start, you know, writing the the vertical and horizontal lines and then writing the and, and drawing the shapes and drawing simple shapes versus complex shapes like a triangle versus like a hexagon and then when it cutting it's also like that we start off cutting the the vertical and the horizontal lines and then we move over to cutting simple shapes like a, a, a square moving on to cutting complex shapes like a hexagon or octagon things like that of that nature we want it to be that we're cutting on the lines and not close to the lines it actually should be it actually should be on the lines itself we want it to be that they're cutting with the right ability to be on these different things and when it comes to remote also you know on and off the past few years during the course of the pandemic we were remote i actually also have a side job late at night where i see kids in a different state a couple hours behind us we do things remote and remote wise also you would think it might be it might be difficult but it's very interesting, actually, to go about it. When we come to the the setup, I am a huge fan of Zoom. In the beginning, when we were remote, the DOE, the Department of Education of the City of New York, my school is in, is in one of the boroughs in Queens, but there are five boroughs, of course, where you could see kids all over the place. So our school and the DOE in general wanted us to use Google Meet. Google Meet is interesting and it was nice to use it, but I found that Zoom I was a much bigger fan of. Of course, all the way at the end, they said everybody could use Zoom, no problem. Had I known that, I would have used Zoom from the beginning. Google Meet, I didn't find as good as Zoom because Zoom, I like their features a little better. They have the remote control option. You can give the mouse control and the keyboarding control to the student, which I think is fantastic. They also could have control of like coloring and circling things and, and drawing things in, which I think is really nice. And I just like the setup of Zoom a little better. I felt it a little more seamless. You know, I have one link. Everybody can share that one link. Google Meet, it's cool to match it up to the Google Calendar and to set it up, but I found it much more exhaustive. Zoom, simple. You know, you have it, the link, and everybody could use it at different times. You have the waiting room. Very cool. And then you, you, you could just have everyone have that link, and it's simple. The only drawback is, of course, the 40-minute cap, the 40-minute, you know, ending time. If you upgrade to Pro or whatever for a fee, you could get a longer time. But every time I, I used it, it always said, you know, you want to upgrade to, to Pro? You're about to run out of your 40 minutes. You know, you already used 30 minutes. But luckily... By and large, the sessions in general are usually 30-minute. Usually the 30-minute, we'll talk about that in a minute, but usually they're twice a week, 30 minutes in a group or in an individual session. But when it comes to remote, it's very interesting to, to see what we could work on because if we want to work on cutting skills, we want to work on writing skills, we want to work on make sure that they're good at these different things, how do we go about such a thing when they're all the way in another state or whether they're in a different part of the same state as you, a different city, especially during the height of the past few years, what would we do? So oftentimes I say, if it's a writing goal, as long as there's writing involved, I'm usually okay with doing different types of activities. If they want to do different things involving their characters, their their favorite items, their favorite people, video game characters, that's okay. I'm all right with it usually, but I have the, the go-to things, and a lot of OTs do this also, especially for remote, especially for virtual visits. A lot of times we'll do activities that require writing down the solution. So I'll do a word find where we circle the words, and they, they have to write down the words that they found and cross out the words that were found. I'll do a crossword puzzle oftentimes where they have to 
think about the clue and uh, figure out if it goes down or across and then oftentimes we'll actually write it in on the on the on the worksheet which I share it's also cool to be able to share it with the participant share screen or share item and uh, then they're able to see that so we could do a word form we could do a crossword puzzle we could do unscramble letters or find the missing letter or we could do secret codes like trying to figure out what different codes are for different letters in a break the code kind of a scramble but but even more than that some of my favorite things are like highlights, hidden items, finding the missing object or the objects on the side of the paper. Usually there's 15 or so. They have to find the item embedded in the larger picture. They circle it and then they write it down. We always have to write it down. And even more than that, we could write it down in a sentence if we want to challenge them and upgrade the activity, updo the activity a little bit. There's also spot the difference and many other tasks like that. I can't remember all of them offhand, but those are the, the major ones. Finding the differences and, uh, and uh, finding the hidden objects are, are two of the major ones that are often done. We could also make makeshift chess I've done and makeshift checkers I've done, connect four makeshift I've done, and uh, even uh, find, finding the words and, and, and assembling them is a little harder Battleship also we've done. I've done a virtual one and a paper-based one. I like the paper-based one better because we're, we're asking them to write on the paper. We're asking them to draw on the paper. We're asking them to color on the paper. There's are different skills that we could do remote-wise, but the possibilities really are endless. And that, of course, was the inspiration for the, uh, the Find Final project that I'm involved in for the past couple of years from a Jewish perspective, trying to get that we find the family, find the items in the different pictures because oftentimes another activity that I've done with kids is where's Waldo and of course we have to find Waldo and his friend Wenda and the dog Woof and Oddlaw the wizard and the bad guy uh, the bad guy Oddlaw and wizard the white beard we have to find him then you gotta find the binoculars and the camera and the key and the scroll and the I forget the last one, but there's one more. You have to find throughout every picture and every page. And that's a good one also for kids, especially in person, because they have to really be involved in that visual discrimination task, looking at the foreground versus the background, also called figure ground. We have to find one item versus everything else. If you're in a looking in a drawer, for example, and you're looking for that one fork in a, in a drawer of big forks and knives and big spoons and little spoons, you're trying to find that one little fork that's a big figure ground task to try to find so when you're trying to find waldo versus the gazillion other people on the page that's a very intensely hard figure ground type of a task for a kid to do and it is difficult it is frustrating for kids at times that's why my own version i made much more toned down much more easy because i wanted to be for four to eight year olds but could always grade it up always could grade it down but in general, these are different types of tasks that we could do. But the mandates themselves are also interesting. In the in the online working company, oftentimes I'll see the mandates are written differently in different states. So for them, they might say 120 minutes for the year. And if you see a kid every week during the year, how are we going to break it down? 120 minutes is not really so much time. If I give them 10 minutes a week... I could last 12 weeks. If I give him five minutes, I could last 24 weeks. That's why I don't like the minutes as much. I like when it's a real mandate set in stone. You know, in the DOE, it's always twice a week or three times a week, 30 minutes, individual or group, separate location, therapy room. Or if it's classroom, you're supposed to push in and see them in the classroom. But still, if you could uh, be on a side, it might still be considered separate. But in general, it's... 
That's how the mandate usually is. Only very infrequently throughout my uh, DOE career have I seen it aside from the 30 minutes. Very infrequently I'll see a 45-minute session, which is very interesting. Very, very, very infrequently we'll see a 60-minute, but that's very unusual, very unheard of. And also very infrequently, I think only one time I've ever seen a 15-minute session. And that's the 12 to 1 to 4 idea that I mentioned earlier. In some cases, in some very physically restricted classrooms, kids that are very physically restricted, that are basically having to rely and sit and use their wheelchair their whole day, that's like four paraprofessionals and a teacher Plus, if they have the, the, the one-to-ones, which they often, almost always do, because they really need the help. So one time I had a student that actually was a 4 by 15 Fascinating. Every day, Monday to Thursday, I needed to see him for 15 minutes to basically range the limbs. So he was in the wheelchair the whole day. For that session, we, we, we either took him out, and uh, it required the assistance of the paraprofessional because it was a very medically fragile type of a child, and we had to do it very slowly and very carefully to, to put him onto the table. And then his limbs basically needed to be ranged, which means they had to be stretched and, and manually manipulated in a very safe and, and soft and, and proper way. But otherwise, he was very much constrained to the wheelchair the whole day, and that's very physically limiting to the limbs, and that's very physically constraining to the limbs, and that leads to stiff in the limbs and god forbid it leads to contracting of the musculature or contracting or withering god forbid of the tendons and the nerves and the muscles so we needed to arrange them every day and that was the 15 minutes for him but usually it is not 15 minutes usually it's the 30 minutes and also on the online Oftentimes it's not the 120 minutes for the year. Sometimes it'll say 360 minutes for the year. Sometimes it'll say 180 minutes for the year. But oftentimes it'll say half hour once a week. Very infrequent to see half hour twice a week. But the mandate dictates to you what you're supposed to do. The mandate tells you what you're supposed to do, how you're supposed to get, go about it, what you're supposed to be involved in, and how you're supposed to, to help them. Of course, the mandate is shown for occupational therapy and is shown for the other professions and is shown for what the child needs in general and what they require in general. We want to help them in the best way we can. And the, the IEP, whether it's online or whether it's in person, that's what directs us and that's what guides us. And when you go to CSIS, for example, and you log in, it'll show you your homepage, it'll show you your students, your current students, you can make different groups, can't give a whole outlook to the to the to the thesis, but it's very interesting how how it's how it's set up. And on the on the IEP itself, it shows you their information, and it, it shows you how you could contact them, how you could reach them. Sometimes the numbers are not actually in service. It also shows you documents, previous IEPs, and referrals or evaluations, re-evaluations, the progress report, and documents related to IEP, like the consent for teletherapy, which we had to fill out throughout the pandemic. But when we go to their their um, information, their profile, usually that's the IP right away. And after the 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 cover page, which is like the demographics and the enrollment, it tells them the status. It shows the IP dates. It shows the consent dates and testing dates. It shows compliance and recommended programs from the IP. It shows if they're an ICT or self-contained Gen Ed. It shows related service recommendations like OT or PT or speech. And then it goes through. The, 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 where, where things are, it shows about their placement and the case and finding their ID and their tests and their service. And 
attends, it's always important to get that first session in. That's called the first attend. It shows the mandate and the roster and the caseload. But when we go to the document, we look for the document that says the IEP itself. The individualized educational program is probably the most important document of all the documents of a child in general, especially in the DOE and especially at large, even if they're in private school, even in NASA or beyond, they also have a specialized program. They might not call it IEP. Before it's an IEP, it's an it's a CPSE and an IFSP, the Individualist Family Service Plan, and the uh, and the the Centralized Preschool Special Education Plan. When they're three to five and zero to two, that's EI. EI is from zero to two, and then the three to five. And then once they become five, that's when really I see them and, and take over. Really, in Gen Ed starts in the kindergarten, is really when they start. The IP starts at age five and goes till age twenty-one. Those in seventy-five will usually have their IP until twenty-one, but those in Gen Ed usually around eighteen. You know, or earlier once they're they're past high school. Really, it tapers off. Hopefully, and. And, th- and that's the idea of the IP. But in the IP, they have the cover page. It says their name. It says their ID and what their classification is. You have to choose from one of 13. The psychologist actually chooses whether it's learning disability or other health impairment or whether it's autism or Down syndrome. There are many different choices, but by and large, it's one of the 13. And if you can't really classify, like if it's clumsiness or motor coordination disorder that goes other, under OHI, usually other health impairment. The main crux of the IP that a lot of us are supposed to look at, are involved in looking at, especially the sections that are relevant to us we talked about before, is the plot. The physical development section is where we usually put our information, although we could spatter it elsewhere. The physical development is what we're seeing, the needs of the quality, the degree of the quality of the motor and the sensory development, the health, vitality, and physical skills of what the kid needs. That's the OT section. So we talk about if he's participating, what he's working on, visual motor, which is the eye versus the hand, fine motor, the intricacy of using the fingers of the hand, the gross motor skills. How is he doing? Does he have muscle tone problems and the upper extremities or not? Does he put in good effort? Does he have the strength? Does he have the stamina? Does he need breaks? Is he improving or not? How is he doing with writing? How is he doing with with coloring, with with cutting? How is he doing with his self-care skills, his self-help skills? How is he doing with eating? How is he doing with organization? Does he have a good grasp? How did he do on his tests? How did he do in school in general? How does he transition? What does he need to help him? These are all things that we would see, hopefully, if it's apropos in the plop, especially for OT. Then we go to the needs of of the special factors. Do they need to have extra testing time? Do they have any special extra technology that they might need? We look at the goals. This is always where we have to put in our goals in order to see how we can help them. This is, of course, where we talk about the 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 cutting goals or the writing goals, oftentimes for OT in the annual goal section, not their post-secondary goals, and then the speech will put in their goals. Oftentimes, we're either the, the first, the middle, or the last. And sometimes it's not actually explained where we are. Sometimes it doesn't show that we are there. And I, I don't like when it's missing the OT. I like it to always say OT so that we know where we are. I like it when it says speech. I like it when it says PT and counseling. But sometimes many students oftentimes don't say it. And I have to look at the goal itself to know that it's my goal. If it says that Sam will improve his fine motor skills and learn how to write or copy three sentences with good legibility, that's formation and spacing and 
not having errors using a good grasp, I know straight up that's my OT goal. Although it would be nice if it said OT dot dot. If it says he will improve his visual and fine motor skills for Sam to have a good drawing, a good coloring, a good cutting task while adhering to the lines while coloring, tracing, or using scissors, we know that that is the fine motor goal. We know that that is OT. If it says that he will be able to decode difficult questions, I know that's not me. If I see that it says he will participate in social discussions with proper eye attention, that's not me. And if I know it says that he will properly ambulate within the school going up the stairs with an alternating pattern, I know that's a PT goal. That's a gross motor goal. But looking at the goals, hopefully you write it in a smart way. The smart goal is the specific, that it's related to the the needs of the student and the student himself. It's measurable. We know what we need, whether he's going to write, you know, um, two to three sentences with four to five words legibly and four out of five trials or 80% of the time. We need it to be achievable. It can't be that he's going to write 16-page essays by the end of the year. That's not achievable. We need it to be something that's that's relevant to the child, that makes sense for him. We're not going to talk about the wrong discipline. We're not going to talk about a goal that makes no sense for him. If he has no sensory issues, we're not going to give him a sensory goal. You're not even supposed to write sensory goals in the DOE. We want it to be relevant to him himself, and we want it to be time-based. It has to be something that we could catch in a year. In Gen Ed, we're supposed to give annual goals, one or two. Usually I try to give two. Some people give three. And in Special Ed, in District 75, not only are you supposed to give an annual goal, but each annual goal is really supposed to be broken down into short-term goals by three months, by six months, by nine months, and then by 12 months it's supposed to be achieved. So if we want him to write two or three sentences, by three months he'll write one. By six months he'll write two sentences. By Nine months, he'll write one to two sentences with no errors, and by 12 months, he'll write it completely no errors and the proper amount. We have to break it down into the short-term increments for him also. Again, no sensory goals. We also want to report the progress to the parent, and we want to think about the recommended educational, special education program services. This is where we see what type of class he really is in. Integrated co-teaching services, ICT, is he it for ELA and math and social and science? Does he get related services, counseling, OT, PT, speech? How much does he get? Is it a group of two? Is it a group of one? Is it individual? Is it twice a week or 30 minutes? The difference between group of one and individual is that an individual can never be seen with other kids. A group of one means that he was seen by himself, but he's able to be seen with other kids so if you can't find him someone else but he has a group mandate you have to write group of one twice a week 30 minutes separate location or in the classroom the therapy area or where and then of course we'll see any supplementary aids or services he needs other assistive technology or any supports he might have in his school day then they talk about any 12-month program or not if it's a 75 a kid in 75 oftentimes they are 12-month students that's why they come to summer school Sometimes the kids will then have testing accommodations. Do they have time and a half? Do they need visual cues or verbal cues? Do they need uh, a location that doesn't have distractions? Do they need tests read by a human reader? Do they need a scribe to write for them? I actually was a scribe for a kid once or twice. Interesting, but uh, kind of difficult. You have to write for him and, and you have to give him cues and whatnot. Sometimes there's transition activities. Then we talk about what type of state assessments or district assessments they'll be involved in and how are they going to participate if or if not with disabilities or not. Do they have special transportation needs? Do they need to be transported or transitioned between different classes or programs at a different site? And 
there's the summary page and then there's of course the attendance page which is signed by all individuals in attendance so the gen ed teacher usually comes a parent comes a district representative comes a psychologist is usually the ones that wrote that um is involved in running the meeting and did the related service provider come actually it's not technically mandated that the related service provider has to come they could always just tell the teacher what to say but it's actually very nice and recommended to come to the meeting i think it's always a very nice thing if possible unless obviously you can't make it it's during a time where it's impossible to see them or whatever but really it's nice when they're involved and of course you sign off on being in the meeting and that's basically the the IEP for a student. In general, on the CSIS page for us, we would see the student, and uh, it has their ID and their last name and their first name, the gender, the age, and the grade. And of course, the main thing is also service capture, where's how we rec- how we write down that we saw them. So we we go to whatever student and we record the 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 service record past service you choose the date of the calendar and then on recording the note this is the note it's called encounter attendance if it's a kid you already saw before it pre-populates a lot of the fields it shows the start time and end time if it's usual it's 30 minutes the date you saw in the discipline usually stays the same it's a mandated service or compensatory and it shows service provided that is twice per week and what we claim how often we saw him 30 minutes the english what group it is or not and is it separate is it in person is it online and if it's a group usually it's group therapeutic procedure and if it's individual then there's other ways of going about it and it talks about the progress did he make progress is it selected progress expected progress partial progress positively in, in involved or not but uh, when it comes to these things it's very uh, very fascinating to see how we could be involved in these things service calendar is where we see the notes that were attended and when it comes to the the kids that we're seeing we we have to make sure to do the to do the lessons to do the sessions and we want to make sure that we're clicking off the right thing so we want it to be that um we we chose the right thing and we want it to be that we give them the the service they need and the the type of session that they need in general though what's interesting though when we do a note oftentimes it will give you the options of what you worked on with the student so if it is a individual session they and you see them in the therapy area you could choose from a couple of things but some of them don't actually work for ot they say cognitive perceptual activities are involved in some cognitive thing like a figure ground thing a visual discrimination thing was a community work reintegration training this is a lot of times if we go on a community thing a community walk or we're working on cooking or going shopping that's a great community thing to do gate training is really for pt manual therapy techniques that's like we were talking about the student earlier you know stretching and ranging the the passively range actively ranging the 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 student that's something that we were involved in we would choose that neuromuscular therapy of movement balance coordination posture especially if they're doing different types of balance activities that would be good re-eval is one of them self-care that's a lot of times if i'm working with them on meal prep or working with them on buttoning or zippers or snaps sensory processing activities is a big one like play-doh or oobleck things like that strength and endurance you know if we're involved in trying to get them to to do strength training Oftentimes it's not, but that's a choice. Therapeutic activities to improve functional performance is a big one that I choose a lot of times because we're doing that. Wheelchair management for those that apply and consultation for phone or teletherapy. 
actually one of the locations that I was in, we actually did have wheelchair management and I actually did work with them on their wheelchair, on their working on managing their wheelchair, working on being involved in that. That was good for them. That was possible to work for them and for them to be involved in. So when it comes to different different sessions, when it comes to different students, we work on different things. This is just a little bit of an outlook, an overview of different kind of the things we work on. But when it comes to education, we want it to be that it's really functional for the children. And it's, of course, different in private versus charter versus public. In DOE, we have the GENA, the ICT, and the and the self-contained. And in 75, we have 611, 811, 12-1. There's also the, the different specialties. You know, they go to gym oftentimes once or twice a week. Oftentimes, they'll have recess combined with lunch. Oftentimes, they'll have computers and art and dance and, and, um, and music and science, really cool different types of things, and library, and of course they have lunch built in too, and snack time for the younger kids, but oftentimes there are different specialties involved. I know in my son's school, he all each day they try to do something nice, something different. Monday, Wednesdays, I know for the older kid is gym. For the younger kid, I forget, maybe it's Tuesday, Thursday, and then he talks about how on one day he has science, and one day he has library, one day they have um, music, I believe, and the one day they have an assembly pre-Shabbat, pre-Sabbath. But when it comes to education, we want our kids to have a nice education, a good education. We supplement it at home. Homework, of course, we talked about a different session, how important it is extracurriculars. We talked about a different session, how important it is. And it's interesting to think about and to talk about what we do as a profession, what we do as a job, and the outlook, the environment we have in the DOE is different than private, but uh, no less wonderful. And it's uh, amazing to be able to work with the kids, with the with the great hours we have. The day starts at 8 and ends at 2.55 for OTs. And uh, in the summer session, it ends even earlier, which is great. A little more flexibility, and the time is a little faster. pays a little better, but in general, it's an interesting type of a day, and, and it's nice to be able to be done, and usually home by 4 to, to get the other kids. But it's just an interesting outlook. Just wanted to bring to mind this week's topic of talking some education, especially the DOE, especially talking about how there's Jenna teachers versus ICT teachers versus self-contained classes in 6, 8, and 12 to 1 in the District 75. Very fascinating. The new rule went into effect of the limiting the class size. The New York State putting it into effect of limiting class size is a nice idea because we want it to be that there is more attention to the kids. Kindergarten through third grade classes will be capped at 20 students. Grades 4 through 8 at 23 students. High school is limited to 25 students and physical education and performing arts or classes are capped at 40 students. I actually think that's really nice, a good win to have the less amount of kids in the class. It's too much to do it otherwise. And it's supposed to be that it's supposed to phase it into the smaller classes by, by each year. It's supposed to be done by 20% of its schools, the city is supposed to reduce class size in at least 20% of its schools each year from 2023 through 2028. So they're not expecting it to happen this fall, but hopefully starting in next year to have that. Again, 20 students for K through 3. I wonder if private is going to want to do this also. If it applies to private school, I don't know. 4 through 8 at 23 students, high school at 25 students, and physical ed or performing arts at 40 students. Fascinating to think that the bill was actually... Um, 
um, brought to, to mind, and I believe it went into effect. I believe it was signed into effect, and hopefully we'll see that in the schools, and maybe we'll see it at large. But this is just a little talk, a little venture, a purview into my world of working with public school students as an OT, as an occupational therapist. And this is Tani Talks Radio, brought to you by Sheer Enjoyment Radio, powered by Radio.co. Tune in to us we- weeknights. Mondays weekly at 8.30 Eastern Standard Time, we talk a topic for the week with the audience members able to take it and to keep it here on Tani Talks Radio, brought to you by Sheer Enjoyment Radio, powered by Radio.co, and I'm your host, Tani. <laughs>